Hello, welcome to the Lansing Area Church of Christ's weekly message podcast. If you'd like to learn more about LACC, please visit us online at lansingchurch.org. This week, Joel Nagel preaches Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, in a lesson called Mary and Martha. Amen. All right, you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We are hanging out with two of the most amazing women in the New Testament today, Mary and Martha. And we're going to start, we're just going to read the passage, and then we're going to, we're going to start by redeeming Martha a little bit. Martha gets a bad rap, I think too much of a bad rap. Um, and uh, we'll work through this passage, and we'll take communion at the end of the message, amen? Uh, Luke ten thirty eight. it says, uh, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay, um, it's such an amazing passage. We're just going to work through it here. Um, and so are you ready? Let's go. Let's do this thing. Um, let me get my slide going. Not quite ready yet. There we go. All right, so um, the first thing that we see is it says that who welcomes Jesus into the house? Martha. Martha is the one who welcomes Jesus in the house. So right off the bat, I know Martha kind of at the end, it's like Martha, Martha, but she's the one who welcomed Jesus. That's amazing. It would have taken a lot of boldness to welcome Jesus and his disciples. They were often rejected earlier in the chapter. You can see an example of that. Um, but Martha welcomes Jesus, and as a good host starts serving. That probably involved things like washing feet. And, you know, it wasn't just one pair of feet. There were all the disciples and people with them. It involved probably getting the dishes ready, making bread. And it wasn't like they could just like throw it in the bread maker or pull it out of their fridge. This, this is like grinding. I don't even know all the things you do, but you can imagine first century bread, getting the oven fired up if it wasn't already going. This is a big deal. And then probably roasting some meat. And once again, there's no refrigeration. And so the refrigerator is, you open the door and you're like, okay, which, which one of you is going to feed Jesus? Um, and you pick a lamb and you butcher it, all the things, okay? That's a lot of work. And we like, I get stressed out hosting sometimes. Can you imagine first century and all the expectations? And so I, th you know, I think, man, first of all, Martha's awesome. Secondly, I think that as Christians, we can relate to Martha. Because if you're a follower of Christ, then you've welcomed Jesus into your house. And that's a big deal. That's not a popular thing to do. It's getting less and less popular, I would say. And I bet that when you welcome Jesus into your house, you, like Martha, started serving right away. It's what we do. Maybe especially in a smaller church. 
you get jobs real quick around here. I can see, like, we need volunteers for the Hope Cafe. We need more volunteers for the teen and preteen ministry. Next week, we better come all hands ready for who knows how many people are coming to Trunk or Treat. All these kids, hot dogs need passed out. There's work to do in a small church, right? And it's great to welcome Jesus and to get to serving, which is what we do. But I think there's a, there's a cautionary thing here that we also need to guard our hearts. Um, I did part of this lesson last week for a minister's call that I'm on. And I begged the men in the minister's call. I said, guys, what I'm saying here is that we need to make sure we're a bunch of Marys and not a bunch of Marthas. And they were like, okay, we'll be a bunch of Marys. Um, the word minister literally means servant. That's the job these guys have. But it's actually not our first job. Our first job is to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's what we learn in this lesson here. And we, you know, we may assume that since we've let Jesus in and we've started serving, that we're also sitting at his feet. But Mary and Martha tell us a different story, don't they? All right. All right. So whose feet are you sitting at? That's my first question. Are you guys hearing like a feedback thing up here or anything? Is it just me? Okay. I've got my voice in my brain right now doubled us, but I'm just going to roll with it. If you guys are fine, we'll do it. Okay. Um, whose feet are you sitting at? Um, first of all, <laughs> sitting at someone's feet, that's kind of gross, right? Um, but sitting at someone's feet in, the, in New Testament Judea had to be really gross. Martha probably washed Jesus' feet, probably washed a lot of feet um, as part of her impeccable hospitality but I bet they were still pretty gross. Jesus and his disciples walked all over Israel in thin sandals. It's dusty, rocky, dirty. Um, and I'm, there's no scripture that says that they frequently got pedicures or anything like that. Um, I ran a lot this summer, and I, and I joked with Beth that I should go get a pedicure, uh, which more and more men are doing. I've never done that. But, but the reason I was going to do it is because I had lost two toenails and I thought I could get like 20% off, right? If you think about the math there, I shouldn't pay full price if they're only doing eight toes. Um, but I think they would have gotten hazard pay um, for, for working with these feet. It would be so bad. Anyway, um, here's the thing. Sitting at, sitting at somebody's feet is more of a heart posture than it is a physical posture for us today, right? Um, the question, whose feet are you sitting at, means who have you committed to learn from? Who have you committed to exemplify? I'll tell you what, there are a lot of feet vying for our attention. To sit at the feet of a, a teacher in Jesus' day meant you literally had to be in their presence, like sitting there at their feet learning. Today we've got YouTube videos and tweets and advertisements and influencers and media, and these things seem like normal parts of our lives, right? But it's, it's all so new. The inundation of information is a new thing. And every year, there are more and more teachers with more access to our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our hearts. You know, there are a lot of really good things out there, a lot of blessings, but I think there are also things that we need to be cautious of for the sake of our brains, our emotions, even our souls. Um, scientists, psychiatrists, ministers are sounding alarms for children and adults alike 
about the dangers of overstimulation, the ubiquity of information that isn't vetted, and the still unknown perils of being hyper-connected all the time. Like, we just don't know how bad that is for us. We just know it's probably pretty bad. And so we have to be careful. You know, one of the things that I'd like you uh, to do this week because of this point is just take some time and think about what are the things or who are the people that you're learning from? Whose feet are you sitting on? I think we don't even realize sometimes that we're plugged into something or we're plugged into someone, and we need to think, is this what I should be doing? Is there something or someone you're learning from you don't even realize? Uh, So I'll give you a couple examples. I follow a guy who's big into Stoic philosophy online. I've read a couple of his books. And Stoic, there's a lot of ways that Stoicism gels with Christianity. It's, it's kind of its own thing. A lot, of, a lot of things work together. But there are some ways where it doesn't. And so I know that as I read this stuff, I've got to be careful. Um, I'm influenced by fitness. Uh, and the thing about me with fitness is I get really obsessed with whatever the thing is that I'm into. And so I've got to be careful. I've got to be thoughtful. Um, one thing I'd like you to consider is how much are you letting your church influence you? Uh, we're not a perfect church, but we are seeking Jesus together. Your relationships here, your house churches that are forming up, discipling, the messages that you hear from the pulpit, these should be big influences in your life. Uh, kids' church, preteen, teens, uh, the Cedars meetings that we have, they should be a big influence. Things that we need to promote in our homes. Uh, you know, we live in an age where you can get great sermons. I have no problem saying this at all. Better sermons than you will hear from me. <laughs> um, at your fingertips. And you can listen to them when you drive, when you do the dishes. Um, there's so much out there. And there's really good stuff. And I'm, I hope you, you tap into that stuff and get encouraged. But this is the only place where you actually physically take on the posture of sitting at Jesus' feet. Mary literally sat at Jesus' feet in a house full of people who were interested in getting more Jesus in their lives. That's what we do when we gather here. We're we're really sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him as we learn from each other. But it's it's physically happening here. It's, there's something more here than we can ever get just virtually. Amen? Amen. And so I want to urge, urge all of us, let's maximize the gift that is the church. Um, let, let this be the primary source in your life for sitting at Jesus' feet. And I think we had some Facebook um, problems there, which kind of illustrates the point that here, we don't have the Facebook problems and the connectivity. Amen? Um, Here's what happens when you sift through all of the distractions and sit at Jesus' feet. You become comfortable in your relationship with God. And so I don't mean, and I think we, we're like, ooh, comfortable. That's a bad word, right? We don't want to be comfortable. And that, no, that's not actually true. Um, not, I don't mean comfortable like we get complacent or take Jesus for granted. But I mean, we should be comfortable with Jesus, Comfortable like, man, Jesus is my real friend. He's a, he's a trusted advisor. He's a refuge during difficult times. He's an encourager of my soul. 
Are you comfortable with Jesus? We know that, that Martha welcomed Jesus in, which is awesome. But Mary was comfortable in her relationship with Jesus. She sits at his feet. And can you just, just for a second, imagine what her face must have been like? She's just sitting there looking up at Jesus. I, I think it had to be the most precious, warmest smile as she learned from Jesus. She's able to tune out everything else, uh, even though it made her sister mad, because she was so comfortable just listening to Jesus. I hope you feel that kind of comfort in your relationship with God, even here, even when it's a little cold, amen? <laughs> uh, there's something about comfortability that, that allows us to do something that Martha does. I think Martha was also comfortable with Jesus. She was comfortable enough to complain, okay? Let's talk a little bit about complaining. Maybe you never thought you'd be asked this question in church, but I want to ask you this question. How much are you complaining to Jesus? Like, how often do you just get real and let God have it? Okay? Some of us, you know, maybe we bristle at the very thought of talking to God like that. It sounds unfaithful, disrespectful. We have to have the these and thous and, and be, you know, be on our best behavior, especially when we're talking to God. But I think that complaining to God is one of the most faithful things we can do. Jesus wants us to go to him with our complaints. He does not rebuke Martha for coming to him and telling him how she was really feeling. Jesus can handle our complaints, even our criticism. But we also have to be humble enough to handle his response. Because here's the thing. Let's be honest. We all complain. Right? Uh, it's actually gospel, part of the gospel, that there is a lot to complain about. We live, part of the gospel is that we live in a fallen world. If you aren't complaining, or at least tempted to complain, you're probably not seeing gospel. Okay? The gospel tells us that this world is lost, and it's not going to find itself. And so, what do we do? We complain. And, and a lot of times we complain to our spouses, to our coworkers, to the whole world. There might not be a less truth, truth, a less truthful, sorry, response to the question, "Hey, how you doing?" To can't complain. Oh yes, you can, <laughs> and I bet I bet you were right before I asked you that question. We're so good at that, aren't we? I want to put some scriptures together here that I think will change your perspective on complaining and maybe change your life. Okay, we know I think the most famous verse on complaining is Philippians 2.14. Uh, in the ESV, it says, no grumbling, which is, I think, is such a descriptive way of, it's the same thing, complaining. Do everything without complaining or arguing. If you are a parent, that's a scripture that you tell your children because they're complaining. No, hey, you're complaining. Don't do it, okay? And so maybe we think that about God, too, that we shouldn't complain at all. Zero, this is it. You become a Christian, you've entered a zero complaint zone. That's not totally true. Because look at these other passages. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. 
Psalm 142, verse 2. This is David. It actually says that David prays this prayer while he's hiding in a cave and running for his life. Talk about having something to complain about. You're living in a cave, running for your life. And he says, I will pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Talking about complaining to God. Can you imagine the complaints David must have had? And then 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, we read the second part of that verse um, as a command that we are to cast our anxieties, but that's not actually what it says. I want you to look at the way that that's written there. Um, Casting is not a command. It's, it's, a, it's describing what a humble person does. The command is humble yourselves. And if you're humble, you will cast your complaints and anxieties on him. Okay? The humble Christian is comfortable enough with God to take that first raw complaint to him. Is that what we do? Who gets your unfiltered complaints? Your spouse? Is that the first round of complaints? Honey, you won't believe what happened. You know, it's never, it's never commanded or suggested anywhere that we complain to our spouses first. In fact, it's a very bad idea. Your spouse is awesome, I'm sure. Your roommates are awesome. But they were not created to listen to all of our complaints and handle all of our raw anxiety. Neither were your children, neither was your best friend. These people can certainly be great sounding boards, trustworthy sources of advice, providers of compassion, providers of encouragement, but none of them should be on the front lines of our complaining. That's where God wants to be. That's where God should be. Go to God first. Even Martha, she doesn't complain to her sister She doesn't go get their brother, Lazarus. She goes right to Jesus with her complaint, maybe even interrupting his teaching. And Jesus hears her complaint and gives her his answer. Are you comfortable enough in your walk with God to complain to Jesus? Let's welcome him in, sit at his feet, until we're familiar enough with our Lord and Savior to complain. We, as I said, we live in a broken world. We should be crying out our complaints to God all the time and waiting for the answer that he'll give us that our hearts need. And here's the answer. You ready? What's the answer? There's one necessary thing. Jesus is the answer. He doesn't rebuke Martha for being a great servant for taking care of all the things that she's taking care of. Instead, he looks at her heart and he sees anxiety and trouble over many things when just one thing is necessary. Martha was distracted from what mattered most. You know, more than ever, we live in a distracted, fragmented, crazy world. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to get any less distracting I know in, in, our, in our lives, this is, this is how it goes. Like, I, I thought I was busy, and then I got married. And oh my gosh, so much to do. 
And then I thought I was busy and I had a kid. Whoa, this, how do you even do this? And then I had another kid. What is going on? And it just keeps getting busier. The distractions are multiplying. They threaten to steal our minds, to take our heart from the one necessary thing. I, th- I thought about this a lot this week, and I've never thought about it like this before. You know, we, we all have our struggles. We all have sin. Have you ever thought of sin like this? All sin, every single thing that we do that hurts God, is a product of distraction from Jesus. We look away from Jesus. That opens us up to sin. There's a famous Dutch Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and he wrote this amazing book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. You want to have a pure heart? Just want one thing. And what's the one thing? It's Jesus. Keeping the most important thing as the most important thing, it's more than just like a life hack. When it comes to following Jesus, I think it's actually the difference between sin and righteousness. I mean, you think about the very first sin. Isn't it, isn't it just a story of distraction? Everything's awesome in the garden. They're having a good time. And then it's like, psst, distraction. Check out this fruit. And it spreads. And that's the end of Eden. You know, today's distractions, I think, have the same ability to take us from intimacy with God to the loneliness of sin. Jesus even warns us in the parable of the sower. You know, one of the, when the, one of the soils, when it starts to grow, it gets choked out by the worries and troubles of life. Distraction seems like such a small thing. We're like, oh, could you repeat that? I was distracted. We even downplay distracted driving. I'm going to look around when I say that. And look at myself, because, oh my gosh, distracted driving. It's, it's a thing. But it, it threatens, that threatens our actual lives. And distraction, I think, is, is a root of evil that threatens our relationship with God. Maybe more than anything else. But we think it's so small. It's such a big thing. One thing is necessary. Amen? All right. So those are some lessons from Mary and Martha. Now I want to close with this last thing as we, as we think about communion here. And that's this question at the bottom. What will your portion be? What will your portion be? So in response to Martha's complaint, Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In other words, I'm not going to tell Mary to get up and help you with the dishes. Instead, you should come join her at my feet. And I like to imagine that Martha, it doesn't tell us what, but I, I imagine she went, she did that very thing, and then they joyfully cleaned up together after Jesus left. Mary has chosen the good portion. What will your portion be? You know, there's something um, that I'm, I'm embarrassed about this, but I'm going to talk, talk about it anyway. I thought that I would have grown out of this. I keep thinking every year I'm going to grow out of this, but I don't. I haven't yet. Okay, so when you, when you go to a restaurant and you're looking at the menu, there are a few ways to approach a menu, okay? Um, you could um, look for the food that you like the best. That's probably, I, I assume, I haven't fully talked this out with people, but I assume that's what most people do. This is the food I like the best. I will eat that. That's good. 
Or there are people, this is not me, who look for the healthiest thing on the menu. This is the healthiest. There are even people who think healthy and taste good are the same. That is not in my way of thinking. And then there are people, and this is me, what I do is I'm scanning the menu for the best value. Most bang for my buck. It might be the thing I like the most, but it might just be the biggest thing on the menu for the lowest price. It's like I'm like starving or super poor. Like, why, why do I approach a menu like this? I don't know, but that's what I do. Okay? Um, I'll give you an example. Like if there's a quesadilla on the menu. Okay? Quesadilla is just a taco with a different shape. And, but I, wanna, I have questions about the shape. I'll talk to the waitress. I'll be like, is this a half circle quesadilla, which is one tortilla? Or is this a whole circle quesadilla? And then it's like, that's what I want. Um, double, double the tortilla, double the toppings. Let's go. Nobody needs eight triangles of quesadilla. You don't need that. That's an appetizer for a whole table. That's what I'm looking for, okay? Um, there's more to this. It's very sad. Uh, when, when cake... Cake is served at a wedding or a birthday party. And I'm, I'm outing myself here. You're going to know this from now on. You won't stand next to me when the cake comes out because this is what I do. comes through and I'm looking at, the, at those wedges, everything, these, those triangles of cake. And I'm like, What's the, when, when is the big piece coming through? And I'll be like, get a small piece. And I'll be like, oh, no, you go ahead. I, I can wait. <laughs> you know, just keep, until the, the big piece comes. And I was like, oh, stuff's there. Go eat my cake. I'm just hoping for a bigger slice to come through. Um, recently, after much uh, reflection, I, I decided this as well. This is the last food story I'll tell you. Um, that uh, if I had to pick one thing to eat, this is what it would be. <laughs> one whole rotisserie chicken. Just me and the chicken. That's the portion size that I want. I don't want half a chicken. Okay, there's something wrong with me, but I bet I'm not alone. Maybe I'm mostly alone on that. Um, but here's the thing. Like a round quesadilla, a fat slice of wedding cake, or the whole chicken, Jesus describes himself as the good portion. You know, we, we, I look for the good portion of food. I feel cheated if somebody gets a bigger plate. We work for the good portion of money, and we get upset if we feel like we're getting less than we deserve. We have expectations about the amount of love that we deserve in our lives from our spouses, our families, our friends, and we feel sad when we, see, we think other people are getting a greater portion and we desire more. How much of a portion do we desire when it comes to Jesus? Are we content with just a morsel? A crumb? The thing about Jesus is just a crumb of Jesus is amazing. But you don't have to settle for that. Maybe Jesus, you know, on the other side, wants a, a greater portion of us. But we're the ones being stingy, spreading our love to the distractions that we talked about. You know, ultimately, this word portion is an inheritance word. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we preached this, the passage right before this the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and I wonder if that's why Luke follows the, the Good Samaritan story up with this story about Mary and Martha, is because at the beginning of that Good Samaritan story, do you remember what the teacher of the law said? He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's, he's asking, how can I guarantee that my portion will be the inheritance of heaven, that I'll get it all? 
there's uh, the book of Lamentations. If you're looking for like just to have a really like exciting time in the Bible, five chapters in the book. Literally, the word Lamentations literally means complaints. And so, if you thought I can't complain to God, there's a whole book in the Bible called Complaints, and it's they're complaining, but it's complaints to God. Okay, and it is a pretty depressing book. But at the very center, it's so filled with hope. Lamentations. 3, 22 through 24, says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is in a book full of complaints. And then it says this, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I wonder if this isn't the answer to every complaint that we have. You need a bigger portion of Jesus in your life. The scriptures talk about the glorious inheritance of the saints. They use the most elevated language, but I think they they still just scratch the surface of what's coming our way, the portion that we will receive. I mean, eternity, can you even imagine? It breaks my brain. What will your portion be? There are two ways to answer that. We can answer from our perspective and look at our lives. Maybe this week even, I want to encourage you, draw out a pie chart, okay? Um, and, And think, what is the portion of my life that I'm giving to God? And what are the portions I'm giving to all these other things? And the goal isn't to make like a huge chunk for God. It's for the whole thing to be God, um, for, the, for it, to, it to cover all of that. That's the portion. But we have, sometimes we compartmentalize our lives so much that we have these things that are totally outside of God take up so much of our time. How can we put God in every piece of the pie? Think about that, that this week. Maybe draw it out. Show your spouse. Show your discipleship partner. Talk about it with your family. That's one way that we can think about what our portion will be. It's what's the portion that we give God. But as we take communion right now, I want us to think about this question the other way. What will your portion be? I want you to look at it from God's perspective. Look at it from the perspective of the cross, where Jesus gave us not a sliver of pie, not a crumb, not not even a large portion. He gave it all. From God's perspective, the answer to this question, what will your portion be? It might be the most encouraging thing in the whole world. Because Martha and Mary and you and me, everyone who sits at the feet of Jesus, guess what? We get it all. So let's take this little portion of communion, knowing that behind all of that is everything. That's what God has given us. Amen? I'll pray right now for communion. Um, Lord, we, it's, it's so hard to even think about what to, what to pray to thank you, Lord. And as, as we live in this fallen world, there's so much that we can complain about. There's, there's just so much broken and messed up and wrong. And yet when we sit at your feet, we see that you have provided the answer for all of that in our hearts. Uh, that you poured out everything. Help us to be people who pour ourselves out for one another 
and for the lost. Uh, and help us just to, to go into this week knowing, God, that you have not held back, that you've given us your very best in your son, Jesus, and that he gave us everything, emptying himself so that we could be whole, we could be filled. That's our portion, and we're so, so grateful. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Lansing Area Church of Christ. While we're happy to share this message via podcast, we'd love to pray and worship with you in person. To learn more about our services or to connect with us, please visit us at lansingchurch.org. Have a great week and go with God. Thank you.